everyone. Welcome to Dot Elyon Podcast. My name is Yoel Glick, and I am the director of Dot Elyon, Center for Jewish Meditation and Spiritual Training in the Holy City of Jerusalem. We are delighted to bring to you these podcasts that explore new ways of looking at ancient traditions in the light of modern spirituality. We hope they will open your mind and expand your heart. Today, my topic is power of spirit. In the book of the prophet Zechariah, fourth chapter, verse six, says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And we think that we can accomplish so much. But really, it's not our strength, it's not our power. It's the Spirit of God running through us that makes things happen in the life and in our, in our life and in the world. And it so important to know that's really the power behind anything, everything. And one of the wonderful surprises for me when I went to Adir, my son's synagogue in uh, Oak Park, is that this was the verse that's on the outside of the synagogue. So whoever started the place really had some vision and understanding. So I immediately liked it. And I knew it wasn't like your rather regular conservative synagogue. When you find no strength left in the body, you find no strength left in the mind. You have to stand on the strength of the self, the spirit. Swami Ashokananda. And Swami Ashokananda really lived by these words. He someone who was not well the entire time he was in America for I don't know, 40 years or something like that. And yet he pushed himself to do amazing building projects and building up the society, the Vedanta Society of San Francisco, Northern California. And he demanded the same with every one of his disciples, devotees. And I know this place, and I'm sure all of us know this place where you just seem to have nothing left. And you don't know how you're going to do what you need to do. And then God comes flooding in, and you wonder why you're worried. And this has happened to me quite a lot these days as I've had so much on my plate all the meditations and all the other work surrounding it and people's lives. And yet just when I get to that point that I give up and say I can't do it, it's when God comes in and I find the strength that I need. Experience this as well when we're on tour, that you can be at the point where you just can't even move. Your voice is gone, you can't say a word, and you have like, a four-hour session to do that day. 
And somehow, out of nowhere, you crawl into the room, but as soon as you begin to speak, it all comes flooding in. And you know, without any doubt, that it's the power of spirit that's animating you. And that there's nothing that can get in its way. And you're just a pathetic human being trying to do your bit. But really, you only accomplish anything when you get out of the way and let God work. So there's a power greater than any force we can imagine. There's a wellspring of infinite strength that never dries. So the power of the eternal divine spirit dwells in the spark of God that lies inside us all. And that's the thing, it's, it's, it's infinite, which means it never ends. It never fails. It's always there. We just have to learn how to tap into that place. And so continuing on with Swami Shokadanda, we have a little interaction between him and Sister Gargi, one of his disciples who was very close to him and came, started this out a little bit mousy and a little bit all over the place, unable to focus what she was doing, not having the will or energy to accomplish what God needs of her. And so when it comes to meditating, she happened to have, you know, a bit of problem. So she comes to him and said, is it all right for me to stuff cotton in my ears when I meditate? Why fight the noise? Swami Ashokananda says to her, no, better not to use external aids. Then she says, it's very noisy in the morning in my apartment. The people below start getting up. Just start to understand there's practical problems. I have somebody building across the street with a jackhammer, someone upstairs banging, all kinds of things going on. Can't I wear earplugs during meditation? He says, no, use willpower. Do you know willpower? She honestly that's what one loves about her. She says, no. She admits she doesn't. She has no willpower. So he says, become acquainted with it. He doesn't take any of the nonsense. Then he says, balanced strength is the true strength. You know, it's like a serene surface of a calm lake. It goes deep, deep. One feels one can give oneself to it and be held securely. If necessary, serene strength can raise waves, mountains high. So suddenly he tells her, hold on, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? We're talking about a totally different kind of strength totally different kind of willpower. It's in balance, right? You're not pushing, struggling, straining. No, it's in balance and it's serene, it's calm. And it goes deep, deep. It goes to the very core of our being. And it's not that you need to make an effort, but you give yourself to it. And you know you're held securely by it. That's, again, this experience I have so often that 
when that, when God's presence comes in, you just feel so secure. You say, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about this stupid personality anymore. You can just let God take over. Everything will be fine. And then he tells the most important thing. If necessary, this serene strength comes from the core of our being and raise waves, mountains high. It's the most powerful force there is. And it's fascinating because it's not what we would think. That's what the next paragraph is telling us. The power of spirit is not accessed by stirring up emotions or by galvanizing our feelings and resolve. So that's most of us think, how do you get your willpower? You get all worked up and you force yourself and you get grit grit your teeth and you do what you have to do. That's not willpower. It's got nothing to do with willpower. That's some kind of animal force within you. How do you get willpower? We tap into this great divine power by diving deep within ourselves to the place of calm and stillness where the presence of God resides. We don't go marching forth into battle. We dive inward. We go deeper and deeper till we hit solid ground. So I like to say, if the body is the temple of of God, then at the heart of that temple is the Evanshtiya, the foundation stone that is that place of stillness and solidity. And that's where God dwells. That's where we can connect to that which is infinite and eternal within us. And from that place, there is unbelievable power and strength available to us. But again, it goes through us. It doesn't really come from us. And it's this place of absolute quiet and tranquility that we awaken the power of spirit, the power of the will of God. And therefore, in those moments when you're really having a hard time, it's not about really screaming and yelling or anything like that. It's not about, you know, beating your head against the wall. But it's about letting go, going deep within, getting past all the turmoil to that place of clarity, quiet, and focus. That is like a pillar you can hold on to and won't let you fall. So now we move from really Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, who were so much on this place of building madliness, they called it, building your willpower to the place of Ramana Maharshi, who had that power, but lived and expressed it in a very different way. One of the devotees of Sri Ramana Maharshi described the special power that emanated from Bhagavan, the Maharshi, when he withdrew inward into himself. When Bhagavan gave Darshan, benediction of his presence on Jayanti days, 
which was his birthday. He generally cut out all casual conversation with his attendants and devotees. For most of the day, he would sit statue-like on his couch, with his eyes open, but not focused on anything in particular. He would be so still that even his stomach and chest, which should have been gently rising and falling with his breathing, would show no signs of movement. Many devotees, including myself, felt that he radiated more than the usual amount of power and grace on Jayanti days. We all felt this power very strongly when Bhagavan sat transfixed in these samadhi-like states. There's another devotee portrayed the same scene. The hall was filled with power and silence, an immense love that was pouring from Bhagavan like a mighty sea. So really his willpower was about him not being there, but something much greater that flowing through him about completely letting go of our outside ideas of strength, willpower, and moving into the deepest immutable silence where the eternal God dwells. And from that place, that power, that silence, everything can pour out with tremendous effect. So many people, one of the things he was most noted for, I've been reading a lot about the stories from the devotees, people would come into Mana Maharshi's presence filled with pain and sorrow, agitated, combative with a million aggressive questions. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just sit there in this deep, profound silence. And as the people sat there in front of him, they would find all the agitation, all the aggressivity and hostility, all the questions, all the pain and sorrow, simply melting away under the influence of the tremendous power of the peace and the divine presence that was with him. And that's the true measure of willpower. The fascinating things about these two paths is that on one hand, you have Ashokananda responding to Sister Gargi. She says, can I put cotton in my ears when I meditate? says, no, build up your willpower. Push yourself beyond your limits. On the other hand, we know of a story that there was a German devotee that came to the ashram, the Mana ashram, 
And the Maharshi, he told him he had trouble concentrating when he was meditating. There were so many noises all around in his, his hideout in Palakatu, this little area outside the ashram where a lot of people lived. He couldn't focus. He says he made him. He didn't just suggest it. He made him earplugs of wax and cotton and gave it to him to wear when he meditated. He says this will help. And he was not adverse to any aids helping one be able to meditate. I mean, at one point, he even considers the possibility that using drugs could help. And he comes to the idea it's more of a terrible negative effect in the end than a positive one. Best to avoid it. But he's open and listening to anything. And he feels that things, that power will come naturally in the right moment. Your work is just to completely, com- continually try and connect yourself to that profound place. And if you just go deeper and deeper into who am I, into f- removing the outer self and touching the infinite self within, eventually the door opens. And then that power just comes flooding in. So it's interesting that the Torah, the Tanakh, actually makes this truth explicit for us in the story of Elijah's experience on Mount Chorev, on Mount Sinai. After uh, Queen Jezebel has said that she's going to have him killed, he goes running off into the desert Then he's first fed by the angel, and on that spiritual food that he gets from the angel, he runs for 40 days and nights, a number that should sound familiar, and goes to Mount Sinai in search of God and goes into a cave. And I'm just adding a little bit that I think in this cave he's pledged into meditation. And it's fascinating that Really, what he goes through is an expression of different stages of spiritual experience. From the noisiest down through the profound quiet. And there's even a passage in Isaiah, which I don't remember right now, but I quoted it in, in Walking the Path of the Jewish Mystic, that details that when God comes, these are the stages by which he comes. So we're told that He seats himself in this cave, plunges inward, and first he experiences a howling wind that breaks upon the mountain. And it says it throws boulders everywhere. And you can feel that it's interesting in in the tradition of the North American Indians, that the wind is what they call the flow of energy going through the body. There's the winds that flow through the body, the prana. And so the first stage when your meditation starts to work, you start to feel energy flowing through you, through your body, through your centers, through your being. And you say, oh my God, this must be God. I'm touching God. I'm touching the divine. And the Torah, the Tanakh says, no, God was not in the wind. And then he experiences an earthquake. The ground starts to shake all around him, the cave and the mountainside. 
And this is the next stage when you have an intense, when you make this intense connection, then actually there's a shaking that goes on in your body because of the strain of passing that tremendous energy. And therefore, you are convinced this incredible power you're feeling, well, that really must be what I'm looking for. But the Tzadach tells us again, that's not what you're looking for. That's just more noise. And then a fire breaks out in the cave and floods down the va- into the valley. And that's obviously the awakening of the Kundalini, when you feel the the rush and the sound and the energy, and you can be totally on fire and the explosion of inner light. And if you haven't thought God was there till then, by that time, you're sure this is it. And the Tanakh says, no, God is not in the fire, in the light, in that experience. But God is what comes after all that in the still small voice that he hears in the core of our being. And it's in that place that we find the greatest strength and willpower because we're literally tapping into that point in our being where the will of God dwells. And you know, we connect the will of God with the crown center, but that's an energetic understanding. And you look at it beyond all this, if you want, there's that place at the core of our being. And that's why Ron Mahasha always talks about the spiritual heart. That's really the place where we meet the divine. So in Psalms 30, verse 8, it says, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. So Rav Cook teaches that this inner strength is not something we attain on our own. It's a divine favor, divine grace. All of our confidence, any real confidence, comes from this profound truth. The recognition that the strength of my mountain is a gift of God. That all the good we have, all the strength we feel, all that we can accomplish is simply a result of divine grace. The shining of his supernal countenance upon us. My second blessing, may God turn his face towards you and bestow upon you grace. And it's not connected to any other reason or cause. And the more we can internalize this truth, what Cook assures us, the more we can realize that it's not coming from us, but through us from God, then the more we'll be able to draw on that divine spirit within us. And the greater will be our own confidence and joy, because we don't have to create it. It's not from us. What we really just have to do is get out of the way. And then God comes through us. And then we can have strength and confidence with full force. 
And it's such a relief in those moments. And that's why the next line or the rest of that verse is, uh, or later on we'll come to it, but first, based on that principle, the Hasidic matter, Mordechai ibn Zish, however, I can never pronounce the name, suggests that whatever we find that our vitality is beginning to ebb away, feel we just can't do it anymore, or a conviction starts to waver, we should recite verse 46.8, which is, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our eternal stronghold. And so what he's saying is use this like a mantra to saying there's a place of strength. There's a place of divine presence that's within us. And if we can just keep connecting to that thought and idea, eventually we'll find that that strength and divine presence comes flowing inside us with full force. Because we tend to forget. That's the struggle we have. We have those moments when, of course, it's so obvious. Then there's moments when we think we can't do it. And there's no way we can find that place. But as we keep thinking, we have to find it. Really what we have to do is get out of the way so God can give it to us, like what Cook says. And at that point then, we can be able to feel that we can go on and do anything that we need to do. And using this idea, if not the words itself, as a mantra, as a way of keep, you know, don't let the negativity come in. Don't let that part that says, I cannot. But rather turn to that place of the knowledge that helps awaken it within us. That there is a profound refuge and divine stronghold at the core of our being. And we just have to keep turning there until the door opens for us. And so that Psalm 40, the same verse continues, Lord of hosts, happy is the human being who trusts in God. So Rav Cook says, what's the connection of the beginning and the end of the verse? He says very simply, when we understand it, what it means to be a human being, a dumb. It's like there's different names that are used to talk about a human being. Adam is considered the highest aspect. When we really know what it means to be a human being, that we're created in the image of God, and that we have the power of the infinite within us, then we'll completely trust in God and we'll be filled with joy. And I know in those moments when I have that feeling. It's just, you're not worried. You feel there's such a relief. You feel it's okay. I can do this. 
And like I say, you feel, I don't have to battle with that personality anymore. I can just let God take over. And that's all my work to do is to get out of the way again and again. So God can get over and bestow that grace upon me, which he's just waiting to do. And then when we understand that, then we have complete confidence. And it's kind of something I do whenever I have a talk to give. Imagine Yossi does a version of it as well. I go and I say, God, whatever you want. You want me to not be able to say anything? I accept that. You want to pour your grace on me, inside me and make me a vessel for this work? I would be overjoyed. And then I go in and whatever happens, happens. And you get some of both. But generally speaking, it's amazing how often God comes in and takes over. And you don't know, even figure out how or why. And when we can do that, it just takes away all the difficulties, all of the sorrows that we feel, and puts us in a whole other state of consciousness. And this is actually what a holy person is. Someone who dwells in total knowledge that he or she is a spark of the living God. And that knowledge permeates everything he or she says and does. It uplifts. It doesn't just do that for themselves, but it also uplifts and empowers everyone around them. Simply by being in the presence of a holy person, we're imbued with confidence, trust, and faith. This, of course, takes us back to the light, life of the prophet Eliyahu and to his last moments with his own disciple, Elisha, the most powerful little sections within Tanakh. Before Eliyahu parts from his disciple, he turns to Elisha and says, ask what shall I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha thinks for a moment, and then he replies, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. What an amazing chutzpah thing to ask. But what a brilliant thing to say. Then it also means he profoundly understood what it was all about. It wasn't about, about gaining powers. It wasn't about really learning I don't know, formulations or techniques or how to raise the energy. It was about receiving the gift of divine spirit. Learning how to tap into that place with a fullness of being. And that's what he was asking Eliyahu to give to him. And it's amazing how that story then goes on, that he says, Eliyahu responds and he says, if you see me leave you and see what happens to me when I'm gone, as I leave, then what you've asked 
has been given. And if you don't, then it didn't, won't happen. And so they're walking along shortly after, and suddenly Elisha says, sees a chariot on horses of fire coming down from heaven, sweeping between him and Eliyahu, and gathering up Eliyahu in the chariot and taking him up into the heavens. And then an incredible symbolic moment. He tears his shirt and crawls, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horses. He's, he's broken. This is, this is the loss of everything. And then he sees that the mantle of Eliyahu had fallen down and lies on the ground. And we have to remember that the first thing that happens when Elisha meets Eliyahu is Elisha's out there, he's a farmer in the field, working the field, and Eliyahu comes by and throws his mantle over him. And we have that phrase, right? Passing the mantle to someone. And Elisha automatically knows what's happening, so obviously they didn't just throw it on him, but there was an incredible influx of energy. And that's how the story begins. And here that mantle returns, saying, now I have that power, that place of connection to infinite spirit onto you. And then after that, after Leo's disappeared, Elisha makes his way back to the Jordan River and to the city of Yericho, Jericho. And there, there's a gathering of the sons of the prophets that had watched them leave. And as they had been leaving, they had to cross the Jordan, which I guess was much wider in those days. And they couldn't get across. So Eliyahu takes his mantle and hits the water. And the water split and they walk through. And of course, the sons of the prophets go berserk. And they say there's like a hundred of them standing there and they just can't believe what just happened. And now... Elisha's coming back and he has Eliyahu's mantle in his hand. And as he hits the river from the other, sees the river from the other side, he takes the mantle and says, where is the God of Eliyahu? And hits the water and it splits. And he walks through. And the sons of the prophet are still there waiting. And they feel the extraordinary energy coming from him and they see what he's done. And as he comes up on the other side, they come up to him and bow down at his feet and say, the spirit of Eliyahu is on Elisha. What an unbelievable moment that must have been. And that's what we all need. We're all hoping for, for that spirit to be upon us, to flow into us, to fill our being, for us to be able to find that place that can raise mountains high, energy and strength, but from a place of complete peace and serenity. A balance and inner harmony, where we let go of all our outer self and its agitation, and let God work through us.
So the power of spirit is the blessing of a holy person. Power of the spirit is the grace of the Holy One. Blessed be he. Power of spirit reaches beyond the body, beyond the mind to touch our divine essence. It is the stillness of the self, the peace of pure consciousness, the silent presence of eternal life that underlies all that exists. Thank you for joining me today. It's been wonderful to be together. I hope your mind has been stimulated, your consciousness expanded, and your heart blown wide open. I look forward to sharing this time together with you next week. In the meanwhile, check out our website, .org, for all of our webinars, courses, and programs. And come visit us the next time you're in Jerusalem. Shalom, peace be with you all.